0: Turn to Mark chapter 12, please. I listened to Riley's two messages just this last week. I was obviously here for last week's, but so jet-lagged I can't remember any of it. And um, So I listened to it again. and What outstanding messages they both were in bringing to life God's word. And this story continues on from there. We're going to read Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through to 34. If you want a title for this message, I've called it, Not Far From the Kingdom. It reads as follows. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment? Is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, No one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity, its necessity, its sufficiency. And Lord, would you speak to us today? Would we all be addressed by you? Each and every individual in the room, would we be addressed by you? Would you speak to us, Lord, through your word? Amen. You know, every conversion... Every testimony story, without doubt, is is something to be celebrated before the Lord, isn't it? When somebody gives their life to the Lord, you want to celebrate it, and you're aware this is a miracle of grace. It is a miracle of sight that they have gone from death to life, and so we want to celebrate it accordingly. And yet there are some conversions that really do change the world, and John Wesley is one of them. Had it not been been for his conversion and ensuing revival that God used him to lead in the United Kingdom, hundreds of thousands of people would have never heard the gospel in the UK. And even more than that, given the political unrest in England at the time, it would have most likely undergone a, a revolution like what happened in France in the 1700s as well. John Wesley then really was a true hero of the faith and used by the Lord to help shape the world of the Western world in the 18th century. And Kent Hughes, in his Mark and Commentary, lets us in, It gives us an insight into how he came to know the Lord. This is his story. John Wesley was born in 1703, the 15th child of Samuel Wesley, the rector of Epworth and his wife Susanna. He enjoyed a good upbringing under his unusually talented and dedicated mother and went on to a brilliant career at Charterhouse in Oxford where he was elected fellow of Lincoln College in 1726. There he served as a double professor of Greek and logic and after serving on his father's curate on two occasions he was ordained a priest in the Church of England in 1728. But he still wasn't a Christian at this point. Returning to Oxford, he joined a group of undergraduates led by his brother Charles and the later-to-be-great evangelist, George Whitfield, a group dedicated to building a holy life. It was derisively nicknamed by fellow Oxonians the Holy Club. Though Wesley was not yet truly converted, he met with these men for prayer, the study of the group New Testament and devotional exercises. He set aside an hour each day for private prayer and reflection, He took the sacrament of Holy Communion each week and set himself to conquer every sin. He fasted twice a week, visited prisons, and assisted the poor and sick. And doing all this helped him imagine he was a Christian. In 1735, still unconverted, he accepted an invitation from the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to become a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia. It was a great fiasco. He utterly failed as a missionary, undergoing miserable conflicts with his colleagues and almost dying of disease. When he returned to England, he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? His mission experience taught him the wickedness and waywardness of his own heart. However, not all was lost. Because in his travels aboard ship, he met some German Moravian Christians whose simple faith made a great impression on him. When he returned to London, he sought out one of their leaders. Through a series of conversations, to quote Wesley's own words, he was clearly convinced of unbelief and of the want of the faith whereby alone we are saved. Then, on the morning of May the 24th, 1738, something happened that Wesley would never forget. He opened his Bible haphazardly, and his eyes fell on the text in Mark 12, verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And in that moment, everything changed for one John Wesley. And so it did. As he encountered God in his word, Through that phrase, you are not far from the kingdom of God, it it radically affected his life and changed his life. Then Kent Hughes, linking it to this text that we have this morning, says this. Beautifully, not only in verse, but in setting, the Lord conversing with a scribe, a lost clergyman of the house of Israel, this text bears remarkable parallels to Wesley's own lostness. And so it does. This text in verse and in setting, the Lord conversing with a clergyman of the lost house of Israel, bears unique resemblance and parallels to this text we have before us. For verse 34 we read, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That phrase would go on to change John Wesley's life. That phrase would have a radical impact on this scribe in the text. And the truth is it can change our lives too. Which is why it's here. Which is why it's God breathed. Because God wants to impact our lives as well. See, this is the last week of Jesus' life. Chapter 10, verse 32, we see Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. And thereafter, from here on in, he's always on his way to the cross. These are the last seven days of his life. He's going to die on the Friday. On the Sunday before the Friday, he enters into Jerusalem on the back of a lowly donkey. It looks like the crowd are well into it, hailing him as Hosanna, the son of David, giving him all the regalia. There's palm leaves, there's olive branches being put out everywhere. But they don't know who he is. They do this to all the different pilgrims. And so when Jesus gets into the temple on that night, on the Sunday night, no one is there to greet him. There's no fanfare. There's no recognition that this is the Son of God. He's just alone. And then he goes out to the village with his disciples. When he goes back to that temple on the Monday morning and he cleanses the temple, zeal for his father's house consumes him. The temple has always been the place where God encounters his people, where God is worshipped. And yet they had turned this temple into a den of robbers. There was selling going on. There was bartering going on. People were abusing what this temple was for. And so Jesus makes a whip and drives them all out. No one dared tackle him on that Monday. But on the Tuesday, when Jesus then returns to the temple with his disciples, the religious elite are there on the steps to confront him. As soon as he gets close to the temple and begins to go up the steps, the religious elite all come out en masse and they are on form to hit Jesus. They want to throw him under the bus. They want to discredit him. They want to show him to be a fraud and a fake before all the crowds. As so the chief priests and the scribes and the elders have a go first. All this is happening in the temple. And they start to address Jesus, challenging him in his authority. In chapter 11, verse 28, 28. It says, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Imagine the scene. Imagine the tension of the scene. Jesus with his band of brothers standing before these guys. They're there en masse and they are addressing him in effect saying, how dare you? And who do you think you are? And Jesus discloses them afresh. I'll tell you who I am. I'm the son of God. And he turns their question on its head, ultimately discrediting them. Well, the Pharisees and the Herodians then have a go. They seek to trap him by talking about Caesar and in particular what they should do with money. So chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They'd already lost round one. Another group comes in for round two. And they're questioning him on, you know, why should we pay anything to Caesar? I mean, the Romans have come in. They've overtaken our city. So what are we meant to do? It was the taboo question of the day. And Jesus Jesus makes it clear to them. You know what? Yeah, you're meant to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you're meant to give to God what is God's. He completely turns it on his head again. Then come the Sadducees, as we saw last week. And they seek to ridicule Jesus and humiliate him with regards to the resurrection. They paint this ridiculous story of, well, what if this guy dies and then gets remarried? And what if they get remarried again? And what if they get remarried again? Who's he going to be married to? It's going to be awkward. And Jesus, in his answer, ridicules them and humiliates them. And then this guy, this scribe, steps out the crowd and enters into the scene. Verse 28 again. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the most important of all? See, this scribe would have been an expert of the law of Moses. And accordingly, then, he would have been theologically aligned with the Pharisees. So he would have agreed with all that Jesus was saying, just saying about the resurrection of the Sadducees. He would have been stepping forward and going, Yeah, teacher, you're right. That's ridiculous what they're saying about the resurrection. And he's got a question himself for the Savior. There's nothing unusual yet about what is going on here. And yet what is unexpected and stunning and startling is the response of this scribe to Jesus' answer. This is what he says in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. In the NIV it simply says, Well said, teacher. <laughs> That's crazy. The scene is one of intense conflict. The scribes, the Herodians, the Pharisees, they're all having a dig at Jesus. They want to throw him under the bus. Ultimately, they want to destroy him and see him killed. This scribe comes out, one of them. Jesus answers him and he says, Yes! That's right. Well done. Everybody listen in. He's right. It's crazy. It's Stunning, it's unexpected, it's startling. And what is also that unexpected and stunning and startling is the Savior's response to him. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God no one in this group of people would have seen this coming. This is the only occasion in the Gospels where a scribe is favorably favorably disposed towards Jesus. This is the only moment in the Gospels when Jesus is commending a scribe. In the midst of a intense and hostile scene with all these groups gathered around Jesus seeking to have a go at Jesus, question his authority, humiliate him, trap him. This scribe steps forward and effectively says, hey, everybody, listen up. What he's saying is true. And Jesus commends him. You know what? You. You're not far from the kingdom of God. It is a surprising and unexpected And startling scene. So here's the question that what I want us to answer this morning is the question that we need to consider if we're going to understand what's going on here. It's simply this: Why then this commendation? What is it about this guy that sets him apart from all the others? Was it? What is it about this scribe? that sets him apart from all other scribes, that caused Jesus to commend him in this way? What is it that the Savior specifically wants him, and indeed then us, to truly see in this moment? Why this commendation? Three points this morning, three things that I think will help us understand what is going on here, help us unpack why this commendation. Three things that I trust will help us to hear God's voice when it comes to this text this morning. Here's the first, All points are actually questions, and here's the first point. Why near and not far? Why near and not far for this scribe? What is it about this scribe that puts him near to the kingdom of God when it is clear that the majority of all other scribes and Pharisees and elders and Sadducees are far from the kingdom of God? What is it about him that distinguishes himself from all other scribes? Well, the text gives us clues to help us see why he is near and not far. First and foremostly, his attitude is favourably disposed to Jesus, which is very different to all the other ones before. His attitude towards Jesus is very different. Though his party hate Jesus and are in opposition to Jesus and are plotting to destroy Jesus... This particular scribe doesn't seem to be one of their clan when it comes to this point. He is favorably disposed to Jesus. And we see that in in his question in verse 28. Because this question is clearly genuine and sincere. Lord, which commandment is the most important of all? He's not seeking to trap him. He's not seeking to throw him under the bus. He's seeking to learn from him. He genuinely wants to know. And it's a sincere and genuine question. In rabbinic tradition, they had 613 commands. 613 commands that they wanted to religiously abide by. And he's simply saying, hey teacher, I've seen what you say. I've heard what you say is right. Can you just tell me which one is the greatest? You know, there's big ones and small ones. Which one is the one? If you had to pick out one that we really need to understand. He's inquiring of the Savior at this point. He's genuinely interested to know what Jesus thinks. His attitude is favorably disposed to Jesus. Likewise, his response to Jesus' his answer is both humble and courageous. In verse 32, when he says, You are right, teacher. He's not ridiculing him or seeking to humiliate him. He's seeking to preach to the crowd that, hey, he's right. What he's saying is true. What he's effectively saying is, listen up. You're right. That, that's both humble and incredibly courageous. You see what I would have done in this moment if I had been favorably disposed to Jesus? I would have said, at the end of what's going on here, the scribes beating on Jesus, the Herodians beating on Jesus, the Pharisees beating up at Jesus, I would have said, Jesus, can we have a chat? Come to my room. You know, I would want it in private. Now this guy. He's happy to align himself with Jesus in this moment. He's incredibly courageous. He knows for a fact that his party are seeking to plot and destroy and ultimately kill Jesus. And yet in this moment, he's saying, Jesus is right. That's very different to all the guys that have gone before him. And literally, his response to Jesus in detail is incredibly discerning. Look at it again, verse 32 and 33. It says, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's a staggering statement for a scribe. A scribe is one who would know the law, understand the law, who would play a part in ensuring that all the sacrifices and rituals are really going on amongst the Israelites. And yet in this moment, he said to Jesus, listen, you're right. These sacrifices and rituals, they're good, but there's something far better. And that thing that is far better is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. If you really want to please God, if you really want to be accepted by God, these sacrifices are important, but there's something greater. And that is God glorifying heartfelt obedience to his commands. That is profoundly discerning for this scribe. And so he is near and not far. In attitude, in disposition, in response, this scribe is completely different from the rest. And accordingly then, Jesus' response to him is completely different from the rest as well. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, when they are challenging Jesus in his authority, here's what he says to them. Chapter 11, verse 29. says, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He's confrontational with them. He's going toe to toe with them, helping them see what you're saying is ridiculous. To the Pharisees and the Herodians, as they seek to trap Jesus with this question about paying taxes, he says to them in chapter 12, verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? It's confrontational. He's standing toe-to-toe with them, to the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they're trying to ridicule him. and in effect, he has to go back. Because in chapter 12, verse 24, it says, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason why you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? I mean, imagine that. That is an intense thing to say to them. They're standing in the temple courts. What he's basically saying is, You are stupid. You know nothing. Says it again in verse 27. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. It's confrontational each and every time. Then this guy, this scribe comes along. He says what he does to Jesus. And Jesus says, verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Very different very different response. He is near and not far. His attitude is favourably disposed to Jesus. His response to Jesus, his answer is humble and courageous and his response to Jesus in detail is very discerning. But why near but not in? Why is he not in? Why does he have to be far? What is it that he's doing that causes him to be near but not actually in and that's my second question if this is the case he's near and not far why is he not in why near and not in see why wasn't this scribe in given his attitudes towards Jesus in this moment his agreement with Jesus teaching why wasn't he in why wasn't Jesus saying, Excellent, you're in? He doesn't. Why near but not in? See, Jesus' commendation of this scribe, if you're paying attention, is without doubt ambiguous, isn't it? It's capable of being interpreted in two different ways. And that's intentional from the Savior. Yeah. It's not like, oh, oh, that's awkward, I didn't realize I said it like that. No, it's intentional. He's deliberately making it ambiguous because on the one hand, he wants to commend this man and help him see, you are near. You are so near to the kingdom of God. He wants to commend him in that sense. And that he also wants to warn and provoke him. He wants to warn him and provoke him to further reflection, further thought, to help him see, listen, you are here, you are near, but you are not in. And my friends, there's lots of things going on in this scene that are stunning, okay? But here's the thing you need to understand. This would have been surprising and shocking and stunning news to this scribe. What do you mean I'm not in? I'm a scribe. Of course I'm in. No, no. You are near and not in. This would have been fascinating and stunning news to this scribe it would have been fascinating and stunning news to the crowd they would have no doubt been looking at themselves when this scribe speaks up applauding the savior now they would have no doubt been looking at themselves as if to say what do you you mean he's not in of course he's in this scribe would have been stunned at the news that allegedly he's not actually in the kingdom of god he would have been there in his white gown He would have been a teacher of the law. He would have sought to give himself to obeying every law in the Old Testament. So surely I'm in, right? No. No, you're you're near. You're near, but you're not in. So Jesus confronts him with that terminology, helping him see he's near, not in, and full of grace and truth. That is the most loving thing he could have done for him because he's not in. So why is he not in? Why is this scribe not actually in the kingdom of God? Why is he near but not in? Well, here's the reason. This scribe is near because he understands the priority of this command. He's near because his disposition towards the Savior is one of leaning in and learning and seeking to learn the truth of the kingdom of God. He's near because he understands. That if we're going to make it into the kingdom, if heaven is going to be our home, then it isn't primarily about just going through ritual after ritual after ritual. It's about truly giving our heart to God. Loving him with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and our strength. And living lives that that love our neighbors like ourselves. He's near because He started to understand all these things. Which would be a profound breakthrough for a scribe. But he is not in because even now, in heart, he thinks he can do it all by himself. In some ways, he's got it. And in other ways, he's completely missed it. If Jesus hadn't stopped this man in this moment and said, Listen, you are near to the kingdom of God, he would have skipped off and said, Sweet! I know what I've got to do. I've just got to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, or my strength. I've got to love my neighbor as myself and I'll be in. Sweet, thanks very much. And yet Jesus stops and, no, whoa. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You're near, but you are not in. It is a loving commendation and indeed provocation to this man. William Lane says it this way. He says, Both the scribe's question and the presupposition stem from a piety of human achievement supported by the scribal interpretation of the biblical mandates. so true. What that means is simply this. He thought he could do it by himself. He realized if this is the standard, great, leave it with me. I'll perform it in my life. I'll do it all. I'll love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul and my strength. I'll love my neighbor as myself. And sweet, I'll be in. I'll be acceptable before God. So thanks for playing. Thanks very much. He doesn't get it. So he's near. He understands the priority of the command, but he's not in. Because even now he is blind to his sinfulness and his need for a savior. This has not caused him in this moment to hit his knees as it should do, and say, I can't do it. I'll never be able to love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul and my strength. I, I just won't be able to do it. Oh, woe is me, help me. That's what he should have done. But he doesn't. He's near. But he's not yet in. My friends, if we're paying attention believe in truth this is one of the most sobering and provoking and frightening passages of all of scripture because he's near he's doing so much right but he's not in see we don't know what happened to this scribe after this exchange it doesn't tell us I wish it did I wish there was some type of sub, subplot somewhere where what happened to him Jesus, when you challenged him like that, did he respond? We don't know. But what we do know, I believe, is the question that this text had for us all along. See, Martin Luther once said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. How wonderful that is. This Bible is alive. We don't just gather around it and tick a box on a Sunday morning and think, yeah, I'll probably have to do that. Is it going to be long? Because, mean, I like a cup of coffee and do stuff. No, this isn't just some moment where we just gather around a, a, a dusty old book that makes no difference in our lives. This book is alive. It has hands. It goes after it. It has feet. It runs after it. It has a voice that speaks to us. This text isn't just Old and historical, it's alive and speaks to us. Each and every one of us, this word has something to say for us this morning. And the question that I think it's been actually asking us all along is the third question that I want to ask you today. And it's to you. And it's this. Where then are you at in relation to the kingdom of God? Seen this man. But where are you? See, the big idea that's attached to this text all the time, the thing that I think Mark is trying to placard before our eyes the whole way through, is simply this that we enter the kingdom of God not through mere understanding, but through faith alone in Christ alone. We enter the kingdom of God not by understanding, not by just saying, Yeah, I, I think God's real. I think there is commands, yes, thank you. We don't enter the kingdom of God that way. This scribe had not entered the kingdom of God that way. Mark is trying to help us see we don't enter the kingdom of God by mere understanding. We enter the kingdom of God through faith alone in Christ alone. So let me ask you again. Where then are you at in relation to the kingdom of God? You know, maybe you are in. Maybe you're here today. Many of you will be in this category. You're here today and you are in. Well, my friends, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's you, okay? Just so we're all clear, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in. This is the message of this story for you to help you see this is is your reality. You are in. And I want to encourage you then Would this text then be another happy and joyful reminder of the incredible grounds of your salvation? Because your salvation is through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how you became a Christian. That's how you know that you're forgiven and justified and redeemed and that heaven is your home. Because Jesus Christ has done it all for you. This man thought in this moment, this scribe thought in this moment, I can do it. Whereas Christianity is realizing, I can't do it. Oh, woe is me, help me. And when we then cry out to Jesus Christ, Lord, would you help me? Would you forgive me of my sin and I put my faith in you as my Lord and Savior? Then you enter the kingdom of God. That's the message of the Bible. And yet as Christians, uh, here's what Sinclair Ferguson says for us as Christians. Wonderful counsel. He says, for one of our greatest temptations and mistakes as Christians is to try and smuggle character into his work of grace. (laughs) How well said that is. One of our greatest temptations and mistakes as Christians is to try and smuggle character into something that he has done. And we all do it. I know we all do it because I watch you do it. And I experience doing it myself. Instead of understanding that I am saved by Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross alone, we start to smuggle works in. And so if I've had a good re- read in my Bible, we think, oh, he must love me today. If we've sucked at reading our Bible, we missed evangelistic opportunities, we said things we shouldn't be saying, we haven't said things we should be saying, we find ourselves thinking, oh my, he must be so He must be so disappointed with me and tolerating me. How dare I even come to church? I don't even know if I fit. I don't know where I fit. How how is this going to work? My friends, that's what legalism really is. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, the only contribution that we make to our justification is the sin that God so graciously forgives. Don't you love that? That's all you've brought. All you've brought to your salvation is the fact that you stink. Okay, Just understand the only thing you've brought to your salvation is your stench. He has brought everything else. So is it good to read our Bibles? Is it good to reach out? Is it good to work out our salvation? Yes. Is it important to live in a manner worthy of the calling we've received? Yes. But that has nothing to do with our justification. Because our justification is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We must not leave on a Sunday morning like this scribe having heard a message and go, right, well that's what I'll go away and do then. And that's what will make me acceptable before God. No, it won't. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is what makes you acceptable before God. Your entrance into the kingdom of God is only via the cross. Not via the cross plus your evangelism. Not via the cross plus your Bible reading. Not via the cross plus your prayer. It is the cross alone. Otherwise we're saying to Jesus, you didn't do enough for me. That's the ridiculous part of what we're saying. The cross was not enough. It's the cross plus me. And this text reminds us It is the cross plus nothing. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone. He's the grounds of my salvation. David Dixon wonderfully says it this way. He says, May we take all our good deeds and all our bad, cast them in a heap before the Lord, flee from both, and betake ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, for in Him, in Him, we have sweet peace. I pray this should be a wonderful reminder to us that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We don't go and try and obey every commandment thinking if I can just do it it'll make me right with God. Now we should seek to obey every commandment because we love Jesus Christ and want to live in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. But the grounds of our salvation is the fact that he wonderfully obeyed every commandment in our place. And when we put our faith in him then, we are completely forgiven, completely justified, completely adopted, completely in understanding that heaven is our home because Jesus Christ has done it all. Is that not a happy and wonderful reminder? If you are near and you indeed are in this text screams that to us but maybe you're here today and you're just near maybe you've come with a friend maybe you've come to see the baptisms you're thinking man i enjoyed the baptisms man this preaching is a bit intense seems to be addressing me what's up with this i'm waiting for lunch maybe you just come with a friend and But as you've started to hear this message, you've realized, if this is true, then I'm near but not in. Or maybe you're here today and you've come for years. In fact, you've come to church as long as you can remember. But in reality, you're just near. My friends, this text is a provocation and a warning and an invite to you. Come in. Not just appear through the windows or look from afar, but you generally come into the kingdom of God because these commands that we read here are not just a standard for some. They're the biblical standard for all. We read in verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Listen. This is what, what one day you were given an account before the maker of heaven and earth on. This is what he's going to be checking in on, okay? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the biblical command on your life. God made us, he knitted us together in our mother's womb, he made us to find our identity and our security and our peace in him, and he gives us a a declaration over our lives, here's what I want you to do as my creatures, I want you to love me with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, my friends, we all fall so far short of that, don't we? We don't love our neighbours as ourselves. We love our neighbours a lot. But we love ourselves a lot more. I've never met anybody. You know, now and again, people just say, oh, I'm just, oh, but the challenges with my life at the moment are just all about other people. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not. And if I could spend time with you for a week, I'd help you see. No, you're still about yourself. You just think you're about other people. And there's none of us in the room that have truly loved the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. That is a completely inclusive statement. It's saying, every bit of energy you've ever had, let it all be about God. That reality should cause us to quake in our shoes. Because the Bible's clear that man is destined to die once, and after that, faces judgment. And The writer of the Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Each and every one of us in the room We'll stand before God and give an account before our lives and this is what we're going to be judged on. And my friends, we all stink. None of us are going to make it. None of us is not going to say, oh, you've done it. Well done. Welcome. For each and every one of us, we're cut off from God in our sin. We've failed by those standards. We're cut off from Him now and clearly in the Bible, we are going to be cut off from Him for all eternity. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anybody who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And that son is the one that is addressing you here right now with the phrase, you are not far from the kingdom of God. My friends, I want to urge you then, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and even now, Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Believe that he died in your place. And believe that he really is the king that you need to live for. And the Bible is clear when we do that, then we are saved. Kent Hughes, in the end of his commentary, goes back to Wesley's story, continues it, talks more about the day when he gave his life to the Lord. This is what happens. He writes, this is what happened to Wesley. His experience in America had brought him to the end of himself. Wesley's honest interchange with the Moravians who witnessed to him brought further conviction of his inner failure. On one occasion as he talked with them, he heard them speak of their personal faith as a gift from God. When he asked how this could be, they replied with one mouth that this faith is a gift the free gift of God, and that he would surely bestow it upon every soul who earnestly and perseveringly sought it. Wesley wrote after that meeting, I resolved to seek it to the end. Finally, it was May 24th, 1738, and as Wesley randomly opened his Bible, he read that beautiful statement, which in nine words condensed the progress of his spiritual pilgrimage. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Then came evening, and the famous statement in his journal tells the story. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that He had taken away all my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley's life had been transformed in that moment as he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He realized it's not about me; it's all about You. And as he put his faith in Jesus Christ in that moment, he felt his heart strangely warmed the gift of the Holy Spirit and he was given assurance in that moment that heaven is going to be your home you are forgiven of your sin you are redeemed and you are right with God my friends today if you are near but not in I pray that today then would be your May the 24th 1738 don't stay outside come in Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And for all of us in the room then, would we be not just near, would we be in? We enter the kingdom of God not through mere understanding, but through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is the only way. He's all we need. So would we all put our faith in him and know what it is to be in? let's pray Lord I do pray in this moment for all those that are near but not in Lord I pray would you arrest their souls Lord would you come through the gift of the spirit and arrest their souls from distraction from 101 different things they'd rather be doing in this moment to being addressed by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, you can in a moment convict us of our sin and help us see our need for a savior. Lord, did you do that? And Lord, for all of us, would we be not then near? but Would we be in? Lord, I want us to be in. I don't want anybody near. Because on that day when we stand before you, there will be no near or in. It will be far or in. We'll be away from you or in. I want everybody in. So Lord, would you quicken our hearts. They may, we may all put our faith in you, make you our king of our life and our savior. And would we be in? And would it all be your doing? And would all glory go to you?